Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. Andrew Montessi here. Dion Heyman's being rested this week. Like all veterans in sport, you've got to manage those guys. But one old fellow who's still going, AFL legend Warren Treadray. Treaders, we've got an Australian Yeah, g'day Monty, we certainly have. Uh, we're talking about Jamie Fuller. Well, Jamie is the founder of a sports technology company, EO, and the driving force behind the development of the brand. And all that it does and stands for, Jamie has unparalleled experience in building successful businesses from startups and a former executive chairman of Skins. He personally founded several campaigns that raised the profile of major ethics issues in international sport. Welcome, Jamie. It sounds uh, another mouthful of an intro there. You've up, been up to plenty. Thanks, Warren. Yeah, um, certainly have uh, been, been busy over the last few years through the pandemic and post the pandemic and looking forward to the next part of the journey. Now that next part of the journey, as you mentioned, is EO. How do you plan to shake up the sports tech slash sports science space? Good question. I'm not too sure I can answer it as as succinctly as I'd like to at this stage. We're still pretty early days, so we're just about to start shipping our first device. Primarily what we're about is we're about assisting elite athletes improve performance. And we do that either through direct performance enhancement devices or alternatively improving recovery and adaptation, assisting rehabilitation or preventing and minimizing injury. So that's sort of the lens that we look at everything through, which is very different to a sports brand. Most sports brands or all sports brands are defined by either a product, a technology, or a sport. So think Nike, footwear running, Adidas football boots, skins or Under Armour compression, or even Canterbury defined by rugby. We come at this, we're tech agnostic, product agnostic, and sport agnostic. So it's all about the elite athlete. And what that means is suddenly, if you're a sports brand and you're looking at innovation, you're looking at innovation within that silo that you operate. Well, we sit here and say, we don't care what that innovation is of what the technology is. It can be apparel, nutrition, wearables, microfluidics, miniaturization. You know, we don't care as long as whatever we create enhances an elite athlete's performance. So that in itself is frankly a bit of a shake-up for the industry because it's not been done before. I mean, when you think about it, if you can, can't think of any other brands that come at it like this at that consumer level. Jamie, you mentioned early days, but... One of the big things you've done is pulled together an all-star team. Like you've got a great CEO, Dean Hawkins, former leader at Adidas, Network 10, among many others. You've got your principal scientist, Dr. Kenneth Graham, world-leading expert, ex-New South Wales Institute of Sport, big-name investors and guys like swimming champ Kyle Chalmers. What is it about EO and, I guess, the opportunity that you think has attracted this calibre of, of people to the brand? Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I, I sit here and I'm in the middle of Sydney. We're in a startup hub and we're surrounded by kids. Probably see I've got a fair bit of grey going on up in here. When I, I sit around and we've got a, a core team of 10 people. And when I look at that team of 10 people, uh, the majority are in their 60s. There's a few 50s. I think there's one 40s and then there's one in the 20s. So you're keeping them young. 
you're keeping them young. That's what you're saying. Look, Warren, it's it's actually we do suck a bit of energy out of the environment. Let me tell you, because we are surrounded we are surrounded by all these, and I, they're not kids. I mean, they're kids to me because I'm just such an old fucker, you know. But when I look around, they're not kids, kids, but they're way younger than we are, and they they probably look at us as a, we're a bunch of freaks. But Andrew, back to your question, I think the the answer is that because this is such a strong concept, and Particularly, I know the, the first the first relationship was with Kenneth, and now Kenneth was twenty four years principal scientist at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. So he was he was N Swiss's employee number one, nineteen ninety six, when N Swiss was set up in preparation for Sydney two thousand. And Kenneth and I are both very closely aligned philosophically on issues around integrity in sport. So when I met with Kenneth, he'd known what I'd done and followed what I'd done previously. So there was this instant connection and then to sort of be able to to pull out of his head because he's a man who's been sitting there working with elite athletes at the very highest level of sport at the olympic level and helping them bring science to their performance and how can science contribute to making you better and so he had this fascinating insight that covered three three areas in particular number one what moves the needle for elite athletes number two emerging research and still today he sits on the research review committee for the Australian Institute of Sport. And that's, that's his real passion, is being across the emerging, emerging research. And three, new technologies. And every, every year, you know, things are getting smaller and getting faster and getting more capacity electronically and digitally. So when you marry those three things together, suddenly you're able to conceive products and devices that haven't been done before that can give athletes insight or help them refine technique or improved performance and and I said to Kenneth you realize if you take your skills in those areas and you add on my experience in commercialization you know supply chain sourcing brand creation brand building marketing and sales through to through to the consumer suddenly you've got a continuum where we go from soup to nuts all the way through between us and so the spark started to fly and then Dean Borkins had previously been my chairman at Skins for four years and Dean's the most brilliant uh, business operator I've ever seen. And he then, so we brought him back from London at the end of last year to be our CEO um, and, and Dean. And then suddenly, you know, that then starts to feed itself. And we've got a, we've got a head of commercial. Our head of commercial is a guy called Peter Skibberis. And Peter was, until earlier this year, he's 10 years head of commercial at Rugby Australia. He's a heavy hitter. And our doctor is Paul Bloomfield and Paul until the middle of last year, was chief medical officer for the NRL for seven years. So he not only wrote the, the, the concussion protocols for elite rugby league, but also for grassroots. So suddenly you've got all these amazing people jumping on board and getting involved because they're all driven by a similar sort of passion around athletes and progress. What is the size of the opportunity? If you can put some numbers around it for context, it'd be really interesting to, to get an idea about that. No, it's fucking billions. Mm. And I say, it's, I say it's billions absolutely genuinely because the way I, I, look at this, I look at this stuff through a similar lens as Skins because Skins is my closest comparable, comparable um, journey. And with Skins, it was all about the technology being the thin end of the wedge. And it's so when we sat down and went to AFL clubs or rugby league clubs and talked to them about what we were doing, 
the moment they understand the technology and the benefits that come from that technology, it's a no-brainer. You know, if you've got something that will help, and by the way, those conversations don't necessarily happen with the players and the athletes. It happens with the strength and conditioning coaches, the physios, the doctors, the sports scientists. So if you look at it in the skins context, the idea of uh, engineered gradient compression, we didn't invent that. We just took it from the medical channel and applied it to sport. And so when we sat down with the coaches, they all went, yep, absolutely, get it, understand it, let's do it. Then, you've don't get me wrong, you've got to validate it. You've got to show and do some studies and not only pilot studies, but have them performed independently. Um, but it, that, that's the thin end of the wedge. Then coming up behind it is the brand. And we all know how, how important and how powerful the brand is. Now, you get those two things right, or those, sorry, three things right. One, the technology. Two, the elite. And three, the brand. Trust me, this thing will just absolutely explode. And that's, that's why I'm so excited about doing this because it's unlike at Skins where we were restricted to compression. It was that very narrow silo. This is now, whoa, this opens it right up. So when you say that, what do you think is missing from world sport science and innovation? Is it that connect? Is that the simple mixture? Is that the simple disconnect as we see in the market at the moment? So I put it to you this way, Warren. Um, I, I've... Before, when we first started doing this, I went and spoke to a lot of my contacts who were at that elite coaching level and had been, like one of them is a mate of mine who was the um, uh, the performance coach and the strength and conditioner for the Aussie cricket team from 2000 to 2005, right? Aussie's heydays, you know, Stephen, Gilchrist, Matty Hayden, all those guys, he was Ricky Ponting, that was his, that was his field. And he said to me, he said, Jamie, this is the sort of shit that we dream about. This is the sort of stuff that we would love to do. But the harsh reality is, whether you are the Australian Institute of Sport, New South Wales Institute of Sport, Cricket Australia, Rugby Australia, whatever it is, you can't go and develop this stuff because you can't fund it. You can't fund it because you can't commercialise it. In order to to do what needs to be done, you've got to be able to commercialise it. And those organisations, that's not their core business. They they don't run commercialisation programs. So it needs operations like ours to be able to come in and do this stuff and partner, whether it's with those organisations or with clubs and teams. That's what's missing at the moment, Warren. And because what you've got is you've got the convention and the convention of those silo sports brands, you know. And when Nike looks at innovation... It's all about what can we do to the shoe? How, how can we sell more shoes? Or maybe something in the apparel. But it's not the blinkers off. What do we need to do to help this athlete? And Nike's probably a bad uh, example because they're, they certainly have the broadest of all the sports brands. But traditionally, sports brands don't have that scope. So there's that piece in the middle that's missing that there's that real bridge between the sports brand and the high-performance um, organisation. Now, you talk about sports science innovation, and that makes complete sense if people are you know, listening right now going, elite sport, get that. But what do you think that means for an amateur athlete, a bloke who plays footy on the weekend or someone, you know, a girl who plays netball on the weekend? Because there seems to be a bit of a disconnect on that one, doesn't there? Um, no, there's not. Psychologically, and you know the world, the world's full of uh, like masses of people who know I'll never play for my country. I'll never be paid to do what I'm doing. Right? That's not that's not going to happen. But 
I still want to feel like, A, I want to feel like it. B, I want to be mentally attuned to compete on that basis. And C, I want to be seen to be doing this. I mean, if I go back to if I go back to skins, if you look at the performance benefits that skins got, they were very real benefits. Grading compression were, were very real benefits. But the people that really needed it or enjoyed it or got a benefit from it, I don't know, two, three, four percent, whatever it is. If you then look at the people that bought these products, the other 90%, 95%, if you then look at those people that did the vast amount of consuming and purchasing, those are people who, and a lot of them, are driven by the fact that my heroes wear these, therefore yeah. I want to wear them. And I remember yeah. as a kid, as a kid playing cricket, I had to have the grey nickel super scoop bat. You know, I mean that was just that was just had to be done. I had to have yeah. the St Peter's batting gloves. You know, I mean yeah, that's the brand new yellow boots someone's wearing now. Jesus, I mean, can you imagine as a kid? I remember when, like in rugby league, Graham Langlands when he came out wearing white footy boots. Oh my God! <laughs> these days, these days. It's it's spot the black boots. I know. I can tell you when that happened. It happened end of 2004, 2005, because I gave up black. I went to blue, then I gave into white because I didn't want to be the the, the black sheep wearing black sh- black shoes. <laughs> there is no question, and and, and I think an, an element of that, a big element, is like I say, not just wanting to feel like, or want, not just wanting to get psychologically into that mindset. But I want to be seen to be serious about what I'm doing. And Skins was a really great thing because it had that yellow stitching down the front of the leg. Right? And you could go and buy a shitty pair of $60 tights or you could buy a $140 pair of Skins. And that made a big statement. And the amount of times that I got abused at my kids' football matches by, other, by parents... You're the fuck with that I had to go and pay $140. <laughs> I bought... I bought little Johnny a $50 pair of tights and he said, I'm not wearing that shit. I've got to have skins, right? And I did, I got, I got roundly abused. But, you know, I mean, that's just the way it is. That's just psychology and, and, that, and that will work. It's just the difference is, I think, today with what we're doing is we don't come so far down the pyramid as we did then. Today, it's not just... I mean, for, for what we do, you have to be really serious about sport to the point that you are genuinely competing. So from a swimmer's perspective, our first device is for swimming. It's not for the person that just, I'm, I'm, I'm serious in that I do 10 laps a day to keep healthy. No, no, no. You've got to be a racer. You, you've got to be racing and, and then, you can, then you will want and need our devices. Well, you're preaching to the converted because I was a Nike-sponsored athlete who had to black out the skins with Texter. Because your product was better, otherwise I got in trouble. <laughs> and that was look. That was there were some really fascinating commercial aspects to that because when we launched, the category didn't exist. Yeah. So, so Warren, were you with Port or yeah. with um, yeah. Bose? Port. Port. And so I, I, I recall very clearly when we started entering into those agreements, the compression category wasn't even recognised. So no. Nike, Addy, Puma, they had their rights. But there was nothing stopping Port doing a deal with us that gave us rights for compression. Yeah. And that loophole changed. <laughs> very quickly, they shut that down. Yeah, and they're throwing in sunglasses and everything else as well, I think. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Dodgy bastards. It's funny. It's, sorry, I was going to say, it's funny. The, the one that we had the biggest problem with was uh, the bombs, was Essendon. Uh, and their commercial department had a very strong relationship with Puma. And the coaching department, uh, with you know Kevin Sheedy was 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 leading at them, and 
there was a guy there, their SNC was a, a, a guy called John Quinn. Yep. John's, a, John's a cracking individual, fascinating man. And he had basically said to the players, look, we know you want this. And there, there was a fight between the coaching staff and the commercial organisation. And they lost, the coaches lost. And the next thing you know is somebody from one of the coteries came in and said, well, okay, the club can't buy them, but I can. And he cut a check for $10,000 <laughs> for all this product. And, right? and then the, the, the one condition was the players had to wear them under their tracksuits. They couldn't be seen. To, I mean, one yeah. thing is wearing it and the other is being seen to be wearing it. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, classic, classic Sydney cider comment from Jamie asking if Treaders plays for, for Port or the Crows. Mate, if you came to Adelaide and you said that, you'd be in big trouble. So we'll just, we might no, have to I'm edit sorry, that out. No. I'm sorry, <laughs> don't, don't dare tell your ambassador or investor Kyle Chalmers that. He's a mad Port man. Don't, yeah, I know. you're in trouble now. I know, Kyle's a great guy. Mate, I guess tying into this, your, your promo video says sports brands will blow smoke up your ass, which uh, is classic Jamie Fuller scripting right there. What do you mean by that? And I guess, where do you think sports marketing is at right now? Oh, look, sports marketing is a joke. I mean, it's, it's, seriously, you know, I've, I've held this view for, for years and years. Um, when we talk about having authentic relationships with elite athletes, I'm talking about genuine relationships. And I'm not just, don't mean friends, I mean product usage and product wearing. We know the majority of brands work on the basis of I'll give you a million or half a million or 20 grand or whatever. And not only will you wear this product or use this product, but you'll seem to be wearing it or use it. We know, and everybody out there knows that this shit goes on. Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, gets a photo holding a product, you know, use this. And the next thing you know is you take that out, you put another one in. I mean, that is blowing smoke up your ass. I mean, that, that to me is insulting. That's treating everybody out in the world like they're all a pack of idiots and just because, you know, we go and pay somebody to say, hello, I use dot, 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 everybody's going to rush off and buy it. So that's why our thing is about focusing on how do we create products and a brand that elite athletes want to use and want to be, want to be aligned with. And that's everything. Authenticity is absolutely everything. Now, we go back in, in time. You had a cheeky style of marketing with Skins, which, you know, while you're at the helm, and, and many, you know, weren't many athletes that didn't know about Skins in the early 2000s. Now, you built a booming brand before, but unfortunately, you know, had to file for bankruptcy in 2019. What do you take from that experience, both good and bad, when you take this into EO? My battery life, I've only got another uh, eight and a half hours on here. So I don't think we've got enough time to go through that, Warren, because I, I mean, I don't know if you guys are plugged in, but I don't think eight and a half hours would do that justice. Um, I've got a whole bunch of learnings. Uh, I made so many mistakes, uh, which has been great. And I look at it as preparation for what we're doing now. I mean, I made mistakes at the corporate level in 2007, which resulted in the, the filing for bankruptcy in Switzerland of the, the, the global operation. Mistakes to do with human resources, strategy mistakes. There's a massive stuff. And frankly, it's one of the, one of the, the key things that I'm enjoying right now is getting the band back together. Uh, and funnily enough, I had breakfast yesterday with a German guy who used to run our German sales operation. He's in Sydney for a, he now works for a company called Camelback doing hydration systems. And, and I was telling him about who we've got back in on the team from the previous life. And it's just, 
it's amazing that you can, because you know when you go through business, you work with people, and I certainly did over my 17 years. There were some people I worked with who I made mental notes of, you're an absolute keeper, and I definitely want to work with you again. There were some at the other end of the spectrum where you think, I'm never touching you again with a barge pole. And then there's a big blob in the middle at which you go. And so I've been really fortunate enough to be able to, in in the, 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 the the employee, if you like, space to be able to cherry pick number one. And also the commercial learnings and when you when you sit down and you talk to potential distributors, we went through that journey starting from scratch. It was a, a blank piece of paper. And so the amount of blind alleys you go down and the mistakes you made and you refine and refine and refine. I mean, now, you know, I can pick up the phone and I can speak to really, really good distribution partners all around the world. Um, and cut out a lot of the, the crap that goes on before. You've talked a fair bit uh, in the past about, you know, the the private equity deal that, that went wrong, which kind of led to the demise. Um, how do you look at the funding side of it now, given given your history with Skins? You know, the market's volatile. I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to settle anytime soon. To, it's a challenging time, as any, to go and build a, a tech startup. What, how do you think about funding going forward? It's forefront of the top of my mind right now. So I've been working on this project now for three and a half years. The first two and a half years, I funded it personally for several million dollars. At the end of last year, I did a small raise of two and a half um, and bought on some external funding partners, what you'd call a seed raise. The plan was that we would launch middle of this year and we'd be shipping product and we'd go straight into a larger equity raise. Two things happened. The China lock, COVID lockdown absolutely screwed us, and that turned our original shipping plan from May, June into November. So that was a, a shock in terms of hitting our ability to generate revenue. The second thing is the markets collapsed, and because when we did that round back in November, and we've got an invest, we had an investment bank on board, and our plan was to list the business within two years. I still believe that this business is has is, is got a strong capacity to list as opposed to going down the private equity route. I'd like to give investors liquidity, not just for them, but for myself. I'd like, you know, and, I, and I, I must say, I hated the idea previously that, you know, I'm going to come to you and you're going to put money into the business and then you'll be able to get liquidity when I'm good and ready, okay? And you will wait. And if you you might wait 10 years, you might wait 20 years, but you're just going to sit there as a, as a silent investor and wait. That doesn't work for me. So that's why a listing would be really important to have that, that liquidity event and ongoing liquidity and access to capital. Certainly with the collapse of the markets this year, that was the second kick in the bollocks. So we're just right now going through, it's sort of like a rights issue with our investing, our existing investors, which then gives us 12 months runway to do two things. One, to get the revenue going so that we've got a, a, a revenue track record. Um, and two, to also hopefully give the markets a little bit of time to recover. Now, there's no guarantees, and frankly, it could be worse in 12 months. You know, you just don't know. But the biggest impediment right now is is revenue, and we've taken lots of meetings with investors. And as the market's gone through the floor, investors have tightened their their wallets as well, and they're basically saying, "Look, we're not going to we're, we're going to really minimise any risk." So it's been it's been quite tough. But if you look at the progress we've made in this period and what we've got ready to go, you know, people are, are quite excited and 
they just want to see some revenue and then they're going to jump on board. Comparing your time uh, at Skins to now, what's different do you see about the sports business in Australia at the moment? If I can answer not just Australia, but globally, when we started our first campaigning and activism was 2012. And that was in the wake of the Lance Armstrong scandal. And it was very, very difficult to get any athlete. And then that sort of led into 2015, which was the FIFA World Cup, the Qatar decision. And trying to get athletes and players to come out and articulate stances based on integrity and based on principle and ethics was really difficult. And not just athletes, but brands as well. So that first one in the, in the cycling space, when I took on the UCI, the Global Governing Body of Cycling, um, I only did it because I was frustrated that proper cycling brands weren't doing anything. I mean, I expected cycling brands to step up and call demands for change in the cycling governance world. And everybody was fucking silent. And I thought, well, eventually, I thought, well, if nobody's going to do anything, I might as well step up. For me, that was pioneering. That was sort of going out into that space. And one of my goals was to try and show, and this, is, this was the thing that probably kicked me in the bollocks the most with the collapse of Skins in 2019. One of my goals was to try and show other brands that you can connect brand fame, commercial success with activism on the, on the right issues in the right way. And I still believe that, and and that's still my goal today. I mean, we didn't fall over because of the activism work we did. We fell over for for those other reasons. But if I look at it today, and today we sit here amidst a massive shitstorm with Netball Australia over a sponsorship from Hancock Prospecting to the Australian Netball team, and now looking at the level of engagement that athletes and players are taking in terms of whose logo am I wearing on my chest? I mean, I saw a report this morning about Paddy Cummins um, having had uh, serious words with the CEO of Cricket Australia when they took on a Linter as a sponsor because of, you know, the, the category that a Linter in, in gas and, you know, the, the potential toxic uh, implications for the environment. So... There's a really fascinating discussion to be had about, you know, where do you draw the line? What rights do players and athletes have? Because as we all know, you can you can have an issue and 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 then you can have within the team itself disagreement. Yeah, because at the end of the day, uh, and, and it's funny, you know, Peter Skibberis, who I mentioned before, who was with Rugby Australia, the last deal he did with Rugby Australia was to put Santos on the journey, the jersey. And Peter Peter told me that, you know, they he had to do that deal. He said Philosophically, I didn't want to do that deal, but there were many millions of dollars at stake. So when you go back to the players and say to the players, okay, guys, well, will you accept X amount of dollars less a year to, to play your game and then we can comply with your, your desires with respect to the brand that's on the jersey? Then it becomes a really interesting discussion. So how do you approach it then, Jamie? I mean, as someone who's been at the forefront of sports activism, really before it was a thing, like you, you mentioned, like back when you were having a crack, everyone else was silent. Now it's now it's a thing where everyone's prepared to kind of um, say their piece, but then you've got competing values. So people believing different things. Um, and then you've got the the need to fund, the simple need to fund an organization, even someone in your situation, you're in that uh, position right now where you're talking to investors, you're going to get investors that aren't aligned with your values. So it's a fascinating question for you to, uh, to address. 
and Andrew, you, you touched on it, some of these are existential, right? And maybe Netball Australia might feel today with Hancock prospecting that this is a, uh, this is a, a sponsorship that could potentially become existential for them. I know, I, I know I think they've lost $7 million in the last year or two, and this is a $15 million sponsorship. The only way around it, Andrew, and there's no easy answer, and you touched on it then, that you can have disagreement within the team. And you can have some players that might say, yeah, I'm happy to go and earn X amount of dollars less a year not to wear that logo. But you'll have others in the team will go, bugger you, right? <laughs> right? I want and I need that extra money, and I'm, I'm happy to wear that logo if I'm going to make more money. So there's no right and wrong in this. The only answer is consultation. The only answer is transparency and consultation. And players' unions and, 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 and athlete advocacy groups are critical. Yeah, we saw that really with Manly mid-season in the NRL, didn't we, with the, uh, the pride jumper. It just seemed like it was something that was put out there and the players say they weren't consulted. And all of a sudden, is that the reason why Manly season snowballed? But they were sitting pretty good by that stage. Now they're looking for a new coach. Yeah. And look, that's a, Warren, that's a really tricky one. Absolutely. Because you get into, you, you get into religious beliefs. And anytime you bring religion into a debate, it's difficult. I struggle with that because couching it in religious terms, to me, it's homophobia, no matter which way you look at it. And particularly when you're running out with bloody great big betting advertisements across the top of your shirt. Right, and alcohol sponsorships at the, the stadium you play is named after a beer. It's a long way away from if you funny we were talking this morning, I don't know if you remember Michael Jones, the all black flanker, right? 20, 25 years ago, a, an amazing flanker. And for religious beliefs, he refused to play on a Sunday. And you know, the all blacks picked him for every non Sunday game. And he had an absolute right to be able to say that. I do struggle. I, I certainly struggle with that Manly Pride jersey issue um, because it is such a problem in society and sport is the perfect lens. Sport is absolutely the perfect lens to be able to, to help play that through and change and progress minds in, uh, in the community. Do you think sports um, ethics are better or worse when you're running skins? Because it sounds like we've already talked about the hypocrisy of we want to pick on one issue, but... We want to take betting or alcohol on the next issue, if you know what I mean. Or is that just how it is? You've got to differentiate. When we talk about integrity, integrity is one thing. Yeah. And then alcohol and betting is another. Yeah. So I look at I look at alcohol and betting not dissimilar to when we have used to, you know, cigarettes, you know, the Benson and Hedges cricket series and all, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. I think for me, betting is the far is the worst one of the whole lot. And it's now it's now deeply ingrained. I, I watched the Phillip Island uh, Motorcycle Grand Prix on the weekend uh, on KO. And at one point, I saw five consecutive advertisements for five different betting agencies. I couldn't believe it. Five of them, ad after ad after ad after. So at some point, I would think that it's going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous and something will have to change. I remember we saw um, young Waterhouse, you know, not the father, the son. And at one point, he was sitting on the side of an NRL football field wearing a Channel 9, a Channel 9 uniform and doing pieces to camera in the middle of the game about, oh, yes, the odds on such and such. I mean, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I mean, that was when it, when it really jumped the shark. But so that, that's an issue to do with sports selling out for money. Conversely, if when I talk about integrity in sport, I lean more towards the issue of corruption. Um, and I think nothing encapsulates that better than FIFA. And you look at what, what happened in the, the Sepp Blatter years. 
So back to your question, Warren, which is, has it got better or is it worse? I think in, in some respects, I won't say that it's fundamentally better, but I will say that it's more visible and there's a greater degree of awareness and people are more attuned to what went on in the past. And I think that's a pretty good start, but there's a hell of a long way to go. As we've seen by numerous events recently, um, Qatar World Cup, you know, we talk about the uh, Gina Reinhart uh, Hancock with netball. Is it the case where money still talks with all these things? Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned then. And is that a concern that the trend is going towards the big events being bought, so to speak, as opposed to what's ethically or what's sensibly or, or what's fair? Absolutely no question. And I mean, if you take Qatar 2022, I had a lot to do with that because I went to Doha back in 2015 and I got smuggled into labour camps and took hidden camera footage and I cut a short film called The Hypocrisy World Cup. And with that film, the purpose of that film was to target, primarily it was four of the FIFA sponsors, Coke, Visa, McDonald's and one of the others, can't remember. It wasn't Adidas, but there were, the, the idea was to target those guys and call them out as hypocrites. Because on the one hand, they sign up to the United Nations Human Rights, but on the other hand, they go and chuck a bunch of money at an organisation like FIFA for FIFA then to go and legitimise human rights abuse and what is the kafala labour system, which is slavery, in Qatar. So absolutely, it's a, it's in, in my mind, it, it, it borders on criminal to be able to go and do that sort of stuff in the way that they did it. Now, don't get me wrong, Ryan. I think if what I would have liked to have seen, I would have liked to have seen FIFA, when Qatar put their hand up and said, hey, guys, we'd love to, we'd love to talk to you about hosting the World Cup. If FIFA had said great, we're happy to have a conversation, but there are some red lines. And the first red line is we're not going to have the World Cup construction built on the back of slavery and dead migrant workers. Therefore, if you're serious about wanting to do this, we need to talk about reform of your labour system. And there has to be a conversation where we bring in, you know, Amnesty International, the International Trade Union, Confederation, whatever it is, and we have to be able to shape what your labour system is. Because when what they've been very clever in doing is when they talk about deaths in, on work sites in Qatar, FIFA try and narrow it down to World Cup Stadium. But we know that their World Cup infrastructure, it's, it's train stations, airports, roads, you know, hotels, you name it. It's not just the stadium, it's everything. All that multi-hundred billion dollar construction program that Qatar has been going through is all on the back of the World Cup. I'm confident that if FIFA had said to them, well, this is the price you've got to pay to genuinely play, I think Qatar would have said, okay, let's let's talk about what we've got to do. As opposed to, sure, we'll give you the World Cup. And by the way, we'll give you the World Cup because of all the bungs and all the dodgy deals that were done in advance. But, you know, we'll give you the World Cup and we'll hope you'll do the right thing thereafter. Well, that's not when you use your leverage. You use your leverage at the beginning. You know, here's the prize. This is the price. If you want that, you've got to pay that. And if they'd done that, and I can tell you, if they'd done that, you could imagine organisations like Coca-Cola. Because for FIFA to have gone to Coca-Cola and said, look, your brand values are all around happiness. Could you imagine what Coca-Cola could have done with their association with an organisation that then changed the lives of 2 million migrant workers? The Coca-Cola would have wanted to have owned that as opposed to running away and trying to divorce themselves from being attached to FIFA through all that scam. It's an enormous lost opportunity for sport to quite literally change the world when you look at it. And that's the, that's the sad thing about it. Andrew, that's what it's all about. It has the capacity to do it. Nelson Mandela said it. I guess the one pleasing thing that I see is that the athletes and the players 
are increasingly becoming more prepared to have their say and want to have their say and being prepared to stand up on issues, on ethical issues like that, as opposed to previously, it's, you know, don't say anything and I don't want to piss anybody off. And that's where we need athletes and we also need brands to be able to come out and say and do the right thing. Now, uh, after some heavy questions and, and talking points, I think we're going to cool off a bit with um, with some of our Fast Five fun questions to finish off. Now, Jamie, to kick it off, who was the biggest name athlete to have donned a pair of skins back in the day? Cristiano Ronaldo. Did he? Yep. And see, Yep. Got, got a photo of him. I uh, had a photo of him when he was at Manchester United wearing them for training. Now, Monty, can I break with our Fast Five, put it on pause? How'd you get that deal done? You make your own luck. Because when I bought skins, I bought it in two hours. I had one meeting, went for two hours and didn't do any due diligence. And I literally committed on the spot. Yeah, I'll do it. And one of the things that was remarkable was I inherited a guy called Graham Arnold. Arnie at that stage was consulting to the business and he was Frank Farina's assistant with the Socceroos. And I say I was lucky because the Socceroos would come into camp and Arnie would give them all skins and then all the soccerers would bugger off back to their clubs Leeds, liverpool manchester united you know they'd have their showers and then they'd pull on their skins after their shower and all the other players go what the fuck are you doing what's that because everyone wants it in a locker room everyone wants what someone hasn't got what someone else has got where'd you get them what do they do for you and then and then before you know it we saw photos of uh, ryan giggs cristiano ronaldo and yeah ronaldo would be would be the biggest would be the biggest one, um, but yeah. Suddenly we're seeing. I, I remember one of. Oh God, I wish I could remember his name. A Wallaby winger was playing over in Perth, and there was this full page full page photo in the newspaper of him with a bloody great big skins logo down the side of his leg. It was bigger than the Qantas logo on his shirt, right? And I remember looking at it, thinking, you know what? They paid $140 for those tights, for him to wear those tights. And Qantas paid them $8 million to wear the logo on the front. You know, that's when it all sort of fell into place for me. That You know, if you've got something that's really genuinely special, if you've got something that, that does something, then you, can, then you can have a really interesting conversation. Then you can, you know, look, if you've just got another bloody, you know, telephone or another Vodafone or something or other, then there's only one way you're going to get that. That's sign a bigger check. But when you've got something that will extend their playing life, that will improve their performance, that will enhance their earnings, then you're in a very special place. All right, unpause. Here we go. If you could bring any sports or business guru onto your board, who is it? Sebastian Vettel. Ooh. Did you see his retirement speech? Yeah, look it up. When he announced his retirement, he recorded like a four-minute, just little simple video. And he talked about what his fundamental beliefs are with respect to sport. And he talked about what he has always wanted to do about improving life. And he's one of the first guys that wore the rainbow helmet, you know, wore rainbow shirts, talking about kicking out homophobia and talking about his personal principles. And I, I look at him and I look at what he deeply believes in in those values. And then I look at also his insight and his high-level performance brain and ability. And I think that's just, for me, that's a perfect marriage. And by the way, I... I wrote to awesome. I wrote to him last week. I wrote I, I wrote to him. I, I tracked down his email address or the email address of his handler and um, sent through a, a little document and a discussion point. So a proposal, Warren. It wasn't quite a prop, but it was more of a this is who we are. And this is what this is what we're doing. And board position. I think that 
that we could do some really good shit together. What's the uh, what's the hardest thing about building a sports brand? Oh, the amount of things that can go wrong. Right? When you sit back and if you haven't done it, when you look at it, and it's not just about the brand, it's everything in the business. If I, I'll answer it as a business, not a brand. When you look at the amount of balls that get juggled, and you know that old saying that you know 90% of startups fail, probably more. And you know, when I, when I look at the caliber of the team that we've got and the, the experience we have and the journeys we've been on, I'm not saying we're on a knife edge, but it's still no lay down the there. There are no guarantees. And there's also that element when it comes to the brand, you've got to catch lightning in a bottle. There's no formulaic approach. And this is part of my problem with, with, with um, consultants and with private equity is, you know, they think that there's just, there's the seven steps on how to succeed. Well, I look at skins and we, we were able to connect. We we're able to connect with the consumer with wonderful creative and we told an authentic story and, um, and that, was, that was brilliant. But there's no guarantee that you are going to connect and catch that lightning in a bottle. Um, and you've also got to make sure you've got the funding to do it. That's because if you run out of funding halfway through, you're rooted. The athlete you admire the most and why? Uh, I can't answer that. That's like, which one of my children do I love the most for him? Look, I, I come back to that space, I guess, someone like Colin Kaepernick, right? You look at what he went through. Um, and the admiration I have for him, Muhammad Ali. Uh, I've never been a, a huge boxing fan, but what he went through, the, the shit he went through. My, my final question is, I, I feel like we've kind of stitched you up by calling it a, a fast five and we've kind of asked you all these kind of broad... The problem, Monty, is he's, he's answered too well. It's, normally it's, yep, no, yep. He's like, oh, hey, Ronaldo, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I know it's too, and my final one's just as hard. It's how do you define, how will you define success for EO? Okay. So there's not one definition of success. There's multiple and there are multiple definition at different stages. Obviously the financial metric is the easy one. And so if you set yourself a goal to build a billion dollar business, then obviously you can measure success that way. I think it's a combination of what I articulated before about being able to show that you can do sports marketing without getting lazy and fat and stupid and dumb and treating your customers in that fashion. I think being able to literally, and I said the same thing in the last with the last journey, is the impact that we can have on society. And if we can have positive impacts, that we can improve and help speed up progress. And by the way, I've used the word progress several times in this discussion. And I use, I, I use it intentionally because EO is Latin for progress. And when you go back to accelerating human progress through sport, that word is critical. And so even if you don't give a root about all the social stuff, if it's all just about I want to swim faster, I want to run faster, I want to, I want to tackle harder, I want to progress, that's important in the performance context. But in the social context, it's critical as well. So I'd, I would like to be able to look back in 10 years' time and see a business that's flourished, that's maximised its potential or that's on its way to maximising its potential as an awesome brand that produces a whole bunch of incredible devices that help elite athletes all under the one master brand and that has a DNA and a culture and behaves the way it should. And it takes tough decisions when it has to, all to keep in line with its, um, with its articulated vision. 
Beautiful. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show and just being so open, um, obviously, about your your history and your story, but also where um, EO is at today. I mean, there's not too many business leaders that will come on and just talk really openly about um, the challenges of being at the infancy of a startup and, and everything that goes with that. So, mate, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure, Andrew and Warren. Thanks very much, man. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.